Well, it's a real privilege to be with you again here this morning in Hamilton. And this morning we're going to turn together to look at a one-off issue in a rather complex book. Uh, we're going to look at the issue of contentment this morning, and we're going to pick that up from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> I will try to give you a little bit of context as we go through, uh, but bear with me, we're breaking into a rather complex section in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. We're only hearing one side in the Corinthian letter, one side of a rather complicated telephone conversation that's been going on. You know that way when you're hearing one side of a conversation and and you wonder what's going on at the other end. In 1 Corinthians, we have Paul's answer to many problems in Corinth, but we only have his side of the conversation. And we have to try and work out what's going on at the other end of the line. So we'll pick some of that up as we go through, but we're going to pick the reading up at verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, and we're going to read through to 31. <clears throat> Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a freedman when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favourite sitcoms is Frasier. It tells the story of two psychiatrist brothers who are always trying to outdo each other in pretentiousness. One of the funniest episodes is an episode called Door Jam, where the two brothers wangle their way into this really exclusive spa club. That in itself was an achievement, but then they discover that their membership doesn't entitle them to certain other privileges, that there's another level, another door. And they wangle their way to that next level through a series of funny situations. And it seems like perfection when they're there, only to discover that there is another door within the elevated door 
And of course, they have to open the door, don't they? Only to discover that it's the exit that takes them into the backyard with all the bins. And so their discontentment, you see, ultimately led to disappointment and disenchantment. And so it's important that as we come to this section in 1 Corinthians, which is all about contentment, that we understand the context in which Paul's speaking. In the previous section in 1 Corinthians, which we haven't had time to look at, obviously, there's been a whole lot of discontentment going on within the Christian church in Corinth about people's marital status. So I want to look at the section here this morning through the lens of the first half of the chapter, which we don't have to look at in detail. But it's important for us to remember the context in which Paul's writing and the challenge of bringing elements from the Jewish faith or pagan temple worship into the Christian church. That was a huge problem in Corinth. There were people in Corinth who'd come from a Christian background and they wanted to bring religious rituals from their background, mainly circumcision, into the Christian church. And you had to become a Jew by circumcision before you became a Christian. And then there were people from the pagan background, from the temple worship in Corinth, and they wanted to bring other things into the Christian church, largely uh, practices that were a bit dubious around sexual behavior and how you connect with the divine through all of that, the things that went on in the temple in Corinth. And so Paul spends most of his letter in Corinth uh, basically sort of trying to disentangle the people from their, cultural back, from their cultural baggage. And there are three phrases which explain uh, why he says the things he does, particularly about singleness and marriage and contentment in that context. And the first of these you'll notice in verse 26. He speaks of the present crisis And the second comes in verse 29 when he says, brothers, the time is short. And the third comes in verse 31 where he says, the world in its present form is passing away. So let's look at these briefly because they provide a context in which we understand some of this teaching around contentment in our human relationships. In verse 26, the word Paul uses is a very strong word for crisis in the original language. It's uh, the word ananke, which means a violent, difficult circumstance. So this isn't just, I can't remember where I put my mobile phone. I mean, that's a crisis these days, isn't it? It's a much stronger word than that. And we've seen this word before in the New Testament. It's exactly the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 21, 23, when he's speaking about his coming and he says, it will be dreadful in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land, he says. Megali anankinen, mega distress in the original language. Now that word megali is the word mega. That's where we get our word mega from. A mega crisis. That's what Paul's saying here. There's there's a mega crisis going on, so therefore there are a lot of things that don't matter as much as you think they do. Now, what does he mean here? Well, we don't know. We've only got one half of the telephone conversation, remember. But he must have known that the people who received the letter would understand what he was saying. Otherwise, he would have explained it 
in a bit more detail. And although we don't know the specifics of the circumstances that led him to talk about a mega crisis, it doesn't mean that we can just say, well, forget it. We don't have to use our brains to try to work it out or deduce from what he's saying some of the principles that will help us elsewhere. And it may also be helpful for us to remember that 15 years after Paul wrote this letter, Jerusalem was reduced to a pile of bricks and stones and rubble. It was raised to the ground to become a ruin. So part of the context that Paul is speaking about here, that bigger picture, is that he wants the people in Corinth to realize that life for Christian believers is life in a war zone. It's life in a war zone. Think about being a believer in Ukraine this morning. Imagine that you're a mum and you're sending your boy out to war and he's dating this girl. Do you advise him to marry before he leaves or not? I mean, there's a more than even chance that he might not be coming home. Therefore, because of the crisis, singleness might be the best option in that situation, do you see, for that couple. Now, in the wider metaphor of the Christian life, what Paul is saying here is that the Christian life is a war zone and it may be better in some circumstances, for some to remain as they are in terms of their marital status. But the mega crisis of verse 26 might be much bigger because there's a sense in which this present crisis doesn't just refer to the potential problems around Corinth and the future persecution that might be coming on them. There's a sense in which this present crisis covers the whole period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The last days, as the New Testament describes it. And we see this in verse 29, where Paul says, what I mean, brothers, is the time is short. Now, that's a likely reference to the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. And from one perspective, you see, with that in mind, the whole of the Christian church throughout all of history lives constantly in crisis mode. We're constantly on the edge of our seats. We're constantly unsure about when the Lord Jesus will return. And as we look into our world, we see things becoming worse and worse and worse. And we think, well, they can't get much worse than this before the Lord Jesus comes back. But then a previous generation thought that when the Second World War started, and a previous generation thought that when something else started many years before that, and so it has gone on through Christian history. And as we look into our world, we think, how long, O oh Lord, how much longer will this catastrophic um, uh, situation in our own nation with the, the implosion of faith and the rise of secularism and how, how much longer will this go on? We're constantly living in a time of crisis. And because time is short, what Paul wants us to realize is that these situations in our lives ought to determine the way we make our decisions in our lives. And our levels of contentment should be influenced by that time frame. Time governs all our decisions all the time, doesn't it? Somebody says to you, would you like to do such and such? And you think, how much time do I have? What have I got on that day? Can I fit you into my diary? 
And Paul says time's also a factor in important personal issues, particularly around marriage and singleness. There's a crisis, and that should influence us. There's a brevity about what's going on, and that must influence us too. And then thirdly, in verse 31, he says there's another influencing factor. The world's form or manner of life or mode of existence is fading. It's fading. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All its vaunted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. The world is passing away, friends. It seems very concrete and very solid. But we've seen on multiple occasions in the last 10 years or so, famine, plagues, financial crisis, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for it all to come crashing down, does it? And we're meant to live with that perspective as Christian believers. We shouldn't be surprised at these things. The world in its present form is passing away. Our time-space environment will explode and disintegrate one day. Therefore, Paul says, eternity matters more than here and now. And when we introduce eternity into how we view issues like marriage or singleness, and when we allow eternity to provide the context as to how we deal with whatever crisis we're living in, the brevity of the world in which we are living and the fact that it's dying revolutionizes everything. It helps us see things in a completely different perspective. So it's important to notice here too that Paul isn't completely heartless. He's speaking with a pastor's heart. I mean, it might sound a bit hard to say to people, well, you know, we're living in a present, we're living in a, in, in a crisis constantly here, and we're living in a crisis here in Corinth. So just, you know, forget about being married and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't really matter. But Paul's speaking with a pastor's heart. He wants to spare people many troubles in this life, particularly those faced by married couples. Now, at this point, some of you are just nodding sagely. You're married, that's great, right? But there are pressures in marriage, aren't there? Not in Hamilton, clearly. <laughs> the word Paul uses for trouble here means pressure or affliction. There are pressures. So let's put it this way. If you're single here this morning and you're leaving to go home after the service... You can call in at Dunkin' Donuts there and um, buy whatever you want. You can go to the all-night McDonald's and stay there till three in the morning, have what you like, come home, binge on a box set. Well, I suppose some married guys do that as well, don't they? But, uh, you can binge on a box set till whenever you... You can do whatever you choose to do. You are your own... You are master of your own destiny in that regard, okay? You do what you want with your money. You do what you want with your time. You get no other pressures on you at all. If you happen to be a father of four here this morning, I would advise you uh, that, uh, firstly, you'd better, you'd better go straight home rather than go to Dunkin' Donuts. That's the first thing, because your wife's looking for you. Uh, <clears throat> and if you did go to Dunkin' Donuts, then you better take something home with you. You better take six donuts at least. And then you're going to have to deal with the carnage of who gets the chocolate one, who gets the glazed one. She took mine, he took his whoever did that, and then you're going to have to be involved in the disciplinary procedures that ensue from that carnage, and on and on it goes. I have a 23-year-old daughter who's getting married on the 30th of August. It never ends. It never ends. 
Paul wants these people to realize what they're getting into. He says, listen, there's a lot of issues that emerge if you get married. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of divisions. There's a lot of stuff to deal with. And in the light of the bigger stuff that's going on, for some of you, it might be better not to get into that situation. And be content with that, he says. Don't wish it was otherwise, because you don't know what problems you might have on that side of the fence. That's the grass greener thing, isn't it? And it's massively relevant to us here. Paul says, I want you to have an eternal perspective on every aspect of your lives. Every aspect of your lives. Remember, in, in an eternal heaven, marriage and giving in marriage aren't important in that space. He wants us to have an eternal perspective in all of our lives. And in the book of Corinthians, he tells us, I want you to have an eternal, an eternal perspective on your attitude to sex. I want you to have an eternal um, perspective on your attitude to death, on your attitude to happiness, on your attitude, on your attitude to your possessions, and on your attitude to the culture you live in. I want you to see all of these things, all of your life, in the light of eternity. Not just in the light of the next 30 years. And in the light of eternity, Paul says, live now as though these things didn't matter. Hold them lightly. Did you notice that? Um, <clears throat> are you unmarried? Don't seek a divorce. Are you married? Don't look for a wife. If you're this, don't look for that. If you're that, don't look for this. Did you see that? That idea of contentment. Hold them lightly. The second principle that he applies we find repeated seven times in 11 verses in this section. Now, if you see something seven times in 11 verses, that's usually significant in the Bible, usually significant and no different here. And the word here is the word called. Called, specifically called by God. And that lays the whole foundation for this section. And he does that in verse 17, right at the beginning of the section that we read. It's a powerful principle. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that God has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And Paul here gives the lie to thinking that things would be better in my life if they were otherwise. Have you ever thought that? Things would be better in my life if they were otherwise. If only this. If only I had that. If only I had done this. If only I were that. If only I were here. If only I were there. If only this... We know how that runs, that narrative in our heads. And Paul wants to teach us here that the changes we need in our lives are internal. They're internal, not external. It's a change of attitude that will transform our lives rather than a change of ambience. And of course, this isn't the only place we see Paul teaching this great truth. In 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, he's already... He's telling Timothy at the end of his life that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is great. But there can be, even in our search for holiness, a dissatisfaction that if things were different, I could do better. I'd be more godly if. You see, contentment is a rare human commodity. At the peak of his wealth, John Rockefeller in the US had a net worth of around 1% of the entire US economy. Now, that's a lot of money. 
He owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry of his time. And one day he was asked, how much money is enough money? And his answer was illuminating. He answered it by saying, just a little bit more. You see, Rockefeller illustrated perfectly that enough isn't an amount. It's an attitude. Enough isn't an amount. It's an attitude. And this is a vital issue for us to address as Christians. It seems to me that as Christians, often we don't stand out in our culture as we should, as being role models of contentment. Indeed, spending some time with Christians in the average church may make you think that you're spending your time with some of the most malcontented humans on the planet. If only this, if only that, it's not like the old days. Tell you that for nothing. If only I could change all these circumstances, I'd be in a great position to serve God. But I can't because, ah, well, you know what it's like. Now, this principle of contentment with what and where you are, illustrated here through marriage and singleness, has already been introduced by Paul in verse 8. But here he states it three times in seven verses. Each one of you should retain the place in life the Lord has assigned to him in verse 17. And in verse 20, he comes back to it and he says, each one should remain in the situation where he was when God called him. And in verse 24, he repeats himself again and says, each man should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, what does all of that mean in practical terms? Well, John Calvin's usually worth listening to or usually worth reading when you're finding something difficult. And he says about this issue here, Paul isn't categorically denying the possibility of changing our circumstances. But he is seeking to check those impulses which drive many of us here and there so that we are confused by our constant restlessness. Constant restlessness. Was there ever a generation like this? that was as constantly restless, that had the attention span of a very small insect, jumping from Instagram post to Instagram post, breeding discontentment, by the way, even on Facebook, which is now seems to be the preserve of middle-aged oldies like me, but um, even on there, all that FOMO, that fear of missing out because your mates are all on this uh, nice day out and you weren't invited or they're away on this holiday or that holiday or the next holiday or whatever and you, all, you never put the rubbish pictures on there do you like what you look like first thing in the morning you never do that no no you, you always put the ones that make you look great and then we jump around constantly restless are you constantly restless in your current situation let me ask you that that's what Paul's asking the people here are you constantly imagining that things would be better if they were otherwise? In your marriage, let me ask you about that. That's really important because marriage breakups don't happen often as the work of a second or a moment. They're the end product of many years of this kind of discontentment, often. In your relationship status, if you're single, 
It's a big issue in our culture, especially for young women. The temptation to change your status is so, so, so strong. But it was also true here for those whose Christian status had changed from being a believer, uh, from being an unbeliever to being a believer. Some were saying in the Corinthian church, now that I'm a believer, everything has changed in my life. I understand that everything's changed, so maybe I should change everything too. Maybe I should change my marital status. Maybe I've become a Christian, and my partner isn't yet a Christian, but because my Christian status has changed, I need to change my marital status. I need to ditch that wife and get another one. I need to ditch that husband and get another one. Paul says, no, 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 no. Stay in the situation that you were in when God called you, do you see? Maybe I have grounds for divorce then. Because my life's changed and their life hasn't. Maybe I should marry if I'm single or marry someone else. Paul says, no, stay as you were when you were saved. Now, he's not urging unbelievers to stay in situations or occupations or circumstances that are blatantly and patently illegal or immoral. That wouldn't be what he's saying. He's not saying if your past pre-Christian history involved you in, in prostitution up at the temple there, stay in that situation. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's calling upon restless people to learn to submit to the context in which they've been saved, given that all other things are equal. In a phrase, he's saying this, be a Christian where you are and be a Christian as you are. Bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. Now, to help us understand why that is important, he points out three things as we bring our sermon to a close. God, firstly, is sovereign in his assignments. You'll notice that in verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him. What he wants us to know here is that God is providentially ruling over the affairs of our lives. It's a very simple principle, but it's an important principle, especially when we live in such a transient society where the temptation is frequently to jump ship. Another job, another office, another wife, another husband, another relationship. Paul says, listen, God is sovereign. He has assigned places to you in life. You should retain that place until it becomes obvious that something else is opening up for you, even when that might be difficult. Some of you will remember Joni, Joni Erickson Tada, who, as a 17-year-old girl, dived into a swimming pool that wasn't deep, broke her neck, and ended up as a quadriplegic. She was a Christian believer. Not long ago, I listened to an interview where jo Joni, now a mature woman, of course, uh, was interviewed. And she was asked, what book helped you most right after your accident? What, was there a book that helped you or some literature that helped you at that time? Her answer was surprising, to say the least. She said that the book that helped her most after her accident was Lorraine Wetner's book, predestination. What? A 17-year-old girl who had just broken her neck, couldn't move her arms and legs and was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And the book that helped her most was, was a book on predestination. But what that book taught her 
was a very important principle that we ignore at our peril. God hasn't lost control. God hasn't lost control. She would never be able to answer the why question. And no books on the planet would ever enable her to answer the why question. But what she learned was that she could trust God, serve God, and honor God in that situation. Secondly, Paul points out that while the assignments which the Lord gives may differ, the call of God is one and the same. So we all have different statuses, maritally, occupationally, socially, all of those areas. But the call of God on all of our lives is the same. It's the uniting feature. And you'll notice that in verse 17, second half. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life the Lord has signed to him and to which God has called him. The call of God and salvation takes place in unique circumstances peculiar to each individual. So your faith story will be different from mine. And although we differ in the places that he has assigned to us, we share the same call of God. And that's really important. It's really important to remember that the call of God in our lives is the thing that unites us and makes us equal in his kingdom. You may be here this morning thinking that your pre-Christian background isn't worth a heap of beans. Maybe you didn't have a Christian background and the person sitting next to you in the pew this morning has this long Christian background. Maybe they were brought up in a Christian family. They, know, they knew all the, the, the Bible stories and the Sunday school stories. And you don't because you don't have that background and you don't have that history. And you can sometimes feel second rate in a, in a big church where lots of people have been there for years. Look, the call of God is the same for all of us. We are no less his children from a Christian background than from a non-Christian background. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And that ought to make us content. Some of you may wish you had a pre-Christian background that was Christian, if you know what I mean, that you were brought up in a Christian environment, not a non-Christian environment. But Paul's saying here, look, be content with your background, the situation you were in when God called you. He knew what he was doing, and your background, your background's part of his plan for your life. So Paul's not singling out the Corinthians for this instruction, because at the end of verse 17, he says, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. They might have been tempted to think he was just having a bit of a go at them, but that's not true. These principles that we're discovering that are emerging from God's call on our lives and his work in salvation, they're universal and they apply to us even this morning here in Hamilton. So Paul then helps the Corinthians understand all of this by providing two illustrations. Now, Paul never shrunk back from a difficult illustration. You know how sometimes there are some things that you, you, you don't want to be getting into that at this stage, Paul. So my wife will now be thinking, you don't want to be getting into this at this stage in this sermon, David. Because the two big issues that he introduces are circumcision and slavery. Oh, well, that's going to be straightforward in two minutes, isn't it? 
But circumcision represented the greatest religious barrier in the culture of the day in the Christian church, and slavery represented the biggest social barrier in the Christian church. And there were all sorts of potential for division. People who weren't circumcised, wishing that they were, being uncontent with that, and uh, people who were slaves, wishing that they weren't, that they were free. And Paul's approach to these issues is radical. In verse 19, you'll notice he said, look, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Or as J.B. Phillips said in his translation, being circumcised or not being circumcised, what do they matter? What do they matter? Now, that doesn't land that heavily on us, where most of us adult males haven't experienced a sharp knife when we were young. It doesn't land that well with us. However, imagine sitting listening in the Corinthian church to this letter being read. You'd have been blown away by that statement, especially if some of you came from a Jewish background and some of you came from a Gentile background and you were certain to think, well, I'm slightly better than him, at least because at least I've been circumcised. He hasn't even been circumcised and he's sitting here, you know. I mean, I'm Premier League. He's championship at best. Circumcision, a hugely divisive issue. But Paul says, if you've come to faith in Christ out of a Jewish background, then thank God for that and continue. Embrace that background as a gift from God. And if you've come from a Gentile, non-Jewish background, thank God for that as well and continue. And don't wish you were one of the other group. Embrace your salvation within the context of your pre-Christian ethnic or cultural background. Be content with it as a gift from God. Then in verse 21, he picks up the other scorpion by the tail. He says, now, each of you should remain in the situation that he was in when God called you. Were you a slave when you were called? Then don't let it trouble you. Now, we're not getting into slavery this morning other than to say the Bible doesn't endorse slavery in any way at all. In fact, it laid the foundations for the abolition of slavery. But slavery was a reality in the first century and Paul addresses the cultural norms of that day. We can't rewrite history in that regard. But what if you were a slave hearing what Paul said? In the Roman Empire of Paul's day, about 50% of the population were slaves. Some of them lived in dreadful circumstances, and that's the kind of image we have. But many of these slaves were actually better educated and more skilled and more literate than the average free person. Slaves in those days included professional people like doctors and teachers and accountants and all manner of professionals. I know some of you working in the NHS and the financial sector and the educational sector these days feel that you're still in a form of slavery of some kind. But some of these uh, people were going through their days subservient and some were going through feeling as though they had some control. But Paul says, if you were a slave when God called you into his kingdom, don't let it bother you. Don't feel as though you're inferior because he who was a slave when he was called is the Lord's free man, verse 22. And if you were a free man or a free person, not a slave, remember that when you became a Christian, you're actually Christ's slave. We're all slaves. You ever thought about that? We're all slaves. 
Because it's not our circumstances that prevent us from obeying the Lord. It's sin that does that. And that's a choice. It's an attitude. It's not circumstantial. But as I said earlier, how often we blame our circumstances for why we don't serve the Lord in the way that we should. In fact, in verse 22, Paul actually, in a vaguely humorous way, shows us that we are all slaves. The ultimate slavery for humans is our slavery to sin. Do you notice what he says in verse 22? He was a slave when he was called by the Lord as the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he was a freedman when he was called as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. The ultimate slavery for us is our slavery to sin. We're either enslaved to sin or we're enslaved to Christ. We live our lives as slaves. And when somebody who's been in slavery to sin is set free by Jesus, they become a slave of Jesus. That's why Paul calls himself, at the beginning of these letters, Paulos Doulos. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And verse 23 gives the picture. You were bought with a price. Now, he's already reminded them earlier in the letter that they were bought with a price. But now he says, because you were bought with a price, don't become slaves of men. Now, the people in Corinth would understand what was going on here. Because here's what happened if you were a slave. If you were a slave, you could save up a little bit of money by working on the days when you weren't on duty as a slave. You could work on the side, make a small amount of money, and take your money to the temple. And when you built up enough money in the temple to buy your freedom back, because there was a price for your freedom, when you had enough money in the bank to buy your freedom back, you could take your master to the temple and the priest, the pagan priest, would hand the money that you'd saved up in the temple, would hand that money over to your master, and you would become a free person. Ah, but not a free person. You'd become a slave to the temple, which had bought your freedom. You would become a slave to the pagan deity. And that adds a whole lot of power to how Paul talks about being freed from sin. It's exactly the picture Paul uses, but he applies it in Christian terms. And he says, what's happened to you as Christian people is that you've been bought from the slavery of sin, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And as a result of the shedding of his blood, you've been set free from all other slavery but the person who paid the price for you now owns you as a slave. You're slave to that deity. Do you see? You're slave to the king of kings, to the lord of lords. So the point that Paul makes in both of these illustrations, circumcision and slavery, is that irrespective of our circumstances, it's possible to live a Christian life that pleases God, and it wouldn't be easier if things were different. So finally then, a priority to embrace. That disillusionment with our lives and that lie we tell ourselves that it would be easier and better if things were different is deeply primal and pervasive in our experience. I'm a big Eagles fan. Uh, that's not the bird, that's the music group. And the lead singer in, in, uh, in the Eagles wrote a song many years later 
called Heart of the Matter. And in that song, he, he's got a phrase that really strikes me every time I hear it. What are those voices outside love's open door? He's speaking about his own broken marriage. What are these voices outside love's open door? Make us throw off our contentment and beg for something more. What is it? What is it that makes us want more? There's something deeply primal about that desire to have what we don't have. And it should be no surprise to us because we've seen discontentment before in the Bible on a massive scale. And seen we, in fact, we've seen human discontentment with perfection. So don't ever think for a minute if things were perfect in your life that you'd be content. Because things were perfect only once in human experience and that was the Garden of Eden. Things were perfect then. Perfection all around. Was there contentment? Was there contentment? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. God's holding out on you. There's more. You can have more. You can be like God. If you do that, you can have this. There's more. There's more. The lie from the pit is still the same. It's been the same through history. Do you see how destructive it is? If you just had a bit more than God's given you, you'll be so much more powerful and so much more able to function at a higher level. If you just had more, more, more. And believing that lie and going through that door didn't lead them to utopia. It led them, and it didn't even lead them to a back alley with dustbins. It led them and us to a human history of carnage and sin and destruction and waste. Because sin at its root is discontentment with God's rule over our lives. It's to say, I do not want your rule over me because I don't believe that living your way will make me truly content. And so in verse 24, he comes full circle and he restates the principle. Brothers, each man is responsible to God and should remain in the situation God has called him to. In other words, the transforming power of Jesus doesn't turn you into a rabid revolutionary. It's not a social revolution Paul wants to see as a result of becoming a Christian. It's not religious ritual either. Do you notice in verse 19 he makes it clear that external issues never take the place of obedience. They never take the place of obedience. So Paul calls us back. He reminds us of God's sovereign goodness in our lives, his call on our lives. He reminds us that God's call has been shown in our lives by a change in our hearts as we become obedient and accountable to him. And as we rest in him, and as we're content with him, as we will be forever. And those changes play out in our lives as we demonstrate that contentment by blooming where we've been planted. May God bless his word to us.